Hi guys, uh, so quick bit of information before we start today's podcast. Uh, we recorded today with Stas, who is um, an amazing podcaster and uh, kind of someone that talks about education. Um, at the moment, Stas, as you'll hear in a minute, is uh, out in Taiwan, which meant that um, not only was there a big time difference, but also there's about three seconds of delay in the recording. So there are some points during this podcast where there's a little pause, and it's not that we're awkwardly staring at each other, it's just that the sound hadn't got around the world yet. So uh, hopefully you can bear with it, and uh, I think there's some really good content in there and some really good uh, educational ideas. So uh, enjoy. You're listening to the Forest School podcast with Lewis Ames and Gemma Sutherland. Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. We're talking to we're talking across time zones uh, today. So, so because Gemma is all the way, Gemma is nearly <laughs> thirty miles away from me, which is thirty quite far. Is eight miles? No, probably what? More. More like five. Five. <laughs> five miles down the road mate but we're, but we're also talking with Stas who is a bit further away Stas is in Taiwan hello and Stas is the creator of the education bookcast um, which if you haven't heard it is a really interesting podcast um, looking at all different texts about education um, and Lewis and I and I know some other for a school um community members have listened to it uh, on occasion and so thank you very much for uh, joining us today. So do you want to um, kind of tell us a little bit about how you started the podcast, what you do apart from the podcast, that kind of thing? Uh, thank you very much for your introduction. Um, yeah I'm, I'm joining this call currently from Taiwan. Um, yeah so the, the podcast, uh, thank you for your kind words about the podcast. Yeah I've been doing it for uh, around something like four years. I don't know, I'm really keeping track, but so that's the kind of time scale. And uh, yeah, I'm putting out an episode about um, a book or an article, a research article usually about education, uh, roughly every two weeks over that time. I've changed a lot in the process. Uh, it's been a long process of my own understanding and development of lots of things around education. Um, so. Yeah, that's it's kind of like a, my own my own journey is is kind of in the background of that, and um, and yeah, I mean that, that that that's sort of a quick uh, quick introduction to it. Yeah, it's it's very broad in its themes. There are many different things I want to talk about or hear about actually, and that's partly why I created it because I thought if I want to hear about it, other people probably want to hear about it. So it's I, I want to look at education from many perspectives, uh, be it psychology, which itself is very broad, cognitive science, um, economics, uh, even like history, philosophy, and other kind of weird niche things which I discover along the way. So just from, from as many as broad perspectives as I can. It's a very, um, it's a very honest, uh, like you say, I think it's, it, is, it does come across as a journey because you're, you're approaching kind of 100 episodes at this point. And um, I, so the, it was um, yeah another forest school practitioner who put me onto your podcast and said oh you should listen to this one and um, 
And then she messaged me really excited about a week later and she went, oh, he's on episode, I can't remember, it's like 86 or something. And he thinks he finally knows what learning is. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> that, it's, that it's that honest to be like, okay, learning is not just a thing. Because on the face value, you would go, oh, learning, you know, people know what learning is. But actually to dig into it probably does take that amount of time, doesn't it? And to approach it from all these angles and, you know, arrive somewhere. It's really nice to hear someone else <laughs> speak with as much excitement as I did in the episode. I was like, look, I figured something out. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of because uh, when I started off, I guess I started off with some basic uh, or some, some immediate questions that came to mind. And then it didn't really take very long for those questions to become very deep. And then I didn't really, I wasn't really able to come up with good answers to those deep questions. And so I just, I kept fishing around as much as I could. And over time, some of those questions now I have answers to. I mean, there are still, still plenty I don't know, and there's still plenty more uh, that I think, you know, in future I'll be able to figure out and communicate hopefully on the podcast. But yeah, I mean, what learning actually is, is something that only occurred to me or only realized what it was um, after literally years of looking into this, which is a bit crazy, but it's partly because we have an intuitive sense of learning is, oh, you know, this sort of thing, but, you know, sometimes having an actual definition, which is very concise, is useful to understanding uh, what we really mean and really getting to the heart of things. So that was what was really helpful about that thing in particular. Mm. Yeah. Can, you, can you remember your def definition of learning right now? Yeah, it's changes to long-term memory, or usually additions to long-term memory. Because changes to long-term memory suggest that it also might be losses, which is weird because then things like dementia would count as learning. But, you know, ah. if, you, if, you, if you forget and it never comes yeah. back, I don't think that's learning. So additions to long-term memory, basically. I think that's part Love of it. is, is uh, you know, we talk quite a lot about it. it is, our podcast is just us geeking out about things and about learning and getting far too niche for most things. But it's when you dig into anything that seems simple on the face of it you go you scratch a little bit and you realize there's so much nuance behind anything like that and then and then you realize particularly something like education and learning there's this idea of like you scratch it and you go oh okay um this person wrote a book about it 20 years ago and you kind of and I think again thinking of it as a journey that like you've been on but also that I have been on in education and teaching and it's like it's almost like every 18 months, I think I've got it. And then I go, yeah. ah, no, I didn't have it. And it's this, it's this other. Yeah. And it's a mixture of stuff that you read and then learners that you meet, I find. You think you've got it, you think you know something, and then you meet a learner who really challenges your um, kind of conceptions of what learning and teaching are. Um, and you're like, oh, okay, this is, uh, yeah, this is something I perhaps haven't considered. Are you, are you a teacher? Are you teaching now? I'm not teaching now. Uh, I did used to be a teacher. Um, I taught in school, um, taught maths, and also uh, done quite a lot of private tuition, like one-on-one, typically maybe one or two, and small classes of the various other kinds of courses as well. So the actual length of time I've been a teacher in a classroom, in the standard sense of like, you know, a sort of large class, not that much really. But I've done quite a lot of teaching otherwise. Yeah. Was that in the UK when you were in the classroom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was in the UK. Yeah, in secondary. It was in secondary, yeah. 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 Applications for Forest School training are now open. 
at childrenoftheforest.com. Check out the podcast links for more details. So it kind of leads on to the, the main kind of idea we wanted to pick your brains on, I guess, and have, have a chat through is that I was thinking from my experience and the experience that I have in the forest school sort of sector is that there's this big push and drive and people are very keen on um, physical skills or like for us, so for us, it would be bushcraft skills. But if I was teaching, I would probably say the same thing would apply to like, I remember when like Numicon came in and the and all the teachers went like, oh my God, Numicon's the thing. We've got to learn how to use this resource. And, um, but there's this sort of very quick and zealous nature about physical skills and physical things that people can acquire and less of an emphasis on what have you read? What have you listened to? How have you broadened your teaching or your education ideas in that sense? Um, and it struck me that obviously your podcast is very much one way in the academic and the reading and the increasing your understanding that way. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on why the academic is sometimes seen as or is not equally valued? Uh, well, that, that I wasn't actually expecting that question, to be honest. Um, the academic is not valued to the physical because I don't live in the same world as you guys in terms of the way that you're teaching and, and the people you interact with. Um, I mean, I understand that perspective and I think that, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it's wrong. I mean, I, which, is, which is not to say I'm, I'm going to say that I wholeheartedly support it. It's just that it is possible to uh, kind of do something like analysis paralysis or something like um, thinking your way into a bubble where you're um, disconnected from the real world. And in fact, so we just talked about whether I'm a teacher or not, or how much I've been a teacher. And, and as I do this all the time on a podcast, I'm going like to relate this to another episode of my podcast. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there is another episode of my podcast where I talk about um, the question of whether you are a teacher or not, and what importance that has. Because, um, I mean, I, I like reading. I read a lot of books. It's kind of necessary for the kind of podcast I'm doing anyway. I read a lot of books, and sometimes they're not particularly about education. And occasionally I think, well, this book isn't really about education, but I kind of feel like it fits in the podcast. I'm going to do it anyway. There's a book like that uh, by Nassim Taleb uh, called Skin in the Game. So he's, uh, Nassim Taleb, is a, he wrote also other books like uh, Fooled by Randomness, uh, The Black Swan, uh, Anti-Fragile. So um, this is his fourth in this sort of series that he talks about um, randomness, statistics, and, and, um, and life. And in it, he basically says, to sort of cut a long story short, if you're making decisions or giving advice, but you don't suffer as a result of bad decisions, then it's very easy to become a charlatan. And you, you're really taking a moral risk by putting yourself structurally in that position. Um, it's just very likely that you're going to shirk responsibility when things are wrong, because you're like, well, I gave bad, you know, I gave bad advice, but yeah, don't worry about that. Like, it's nothing to do with me, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So he, he, de he describes that a lot. Um, and that's what he calls skin in the game. If you don't have skin in the game, that's a moral problem. And what the point I made in that episode is basically as of, at that time, it was as of a few months ago. Currently, it's about as of roughly a year ago. I'm not actively teaching. And I was teaching in some way for like at least eight years until that point. And I basically was making the comment that if you don't have direct access to the reality on the ground of teaching people, 
you're in a risk, you, you have a risk, a greater risk than, than others of becoming a kind of theoretical ivory tower pseudo charlatan, basically. Um, yeah. Which there are some of, I'm, I'm not going to pull punches here, that there are some people who don't teach, do talk about teaching, and end up saying things that are just really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a thing that exists in the education world. Um, so we were just saying now about how like maybe people are undervaluing the academic side. On the one hand, there are things that academic stuff can teach us. Let's not pretend that, you know, science is useless or anything, <laughs> anything like that, right? But on the other hand, it is true that if you do disconnect yourself from the reality on the ground by not actually carrying anything out, then it is very easy for you to really lose sight of reality as a result. Because you can be kind of living in your theories and in your, in your wise sounding words without having to actually um, see whether it works or not, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big um, kind of point that people make about uh, people in power when they are making decisions that affect a whole country, for example, on their education policy. And, uh, and you, you actually question that and go, what are you actually basing this on? You know, how much have you personally experienced any of this stuff? Are you basing this back on your own school days um, or anything beyond that? Um, not naming any names about <laughs> past education ministers in the UK. But um, that is a, that's a challenge. And that's, I think that's a challenge, whatever field you're in, if you're involved in the world of training. So in forest school, um, you know, there are a lot of us practitioners who will be uh, delivering training to other forest school leaders in how to become a forest school leader or in a particular field um, and that's often a lot more lucrative that kind of world of training than boots on the ground working with learners doing forest school um, and so the pull obviously I think for a lot of people is in that direction and you look at kind of your um, you know the reward that you get both financially and uh, you know personally from doing that kind of work is is really great um, and you have to put effort in to remain on the ground and still practicing uh, with like a small group of toddlers and their, and their families, you know. Um, but how necessary that is, is, is good to remember, I think. That's a really, really good point. Um, do, you, do you feel that you, I'm, I'm quite interested in, um, and we talk, we've talked on the podcast before with other uh, sort of people involved in the world of learning, um, about sort of teacher training and the things that are missing from that and the things that are chosen to be included in that. Um, do you feel like one of the reasons of doing your podcast is to kind of make up for things that might have been missing in your training or do you feel that it was adequate and this is just a personal interest for you? Yeah, so uh, I have to mention that I haven't actually been formally trained as a teacher. When I worked <gasps> as a teacher, I yeah, I worked in a private school that didn't require that. Um, yeah. So I, although my, my sister has done this training, she's currently not a, a, well, not a teacher per se, because um, things in a more or less related field in some respect. Uh, but uh, she's, she's done teacher training, and I have some awareness of what is in teacher training. Um, but I haven't actually gone through it myself. So with that in mind, like, I'm not sure how much I should, <laughs> I should comment. Yeah. Basically, since, you're, since part of your question was asking uh, what is the motivation in terms of training, it was because I wanted to understand education because I got into private tuition actually before I got into working in school. So, um, and I was kind of interested in learning anyway because I'm the kind of person who likes to learn things all the time. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to understand it and 
pressured me to do a better job at it, basically. And then I got into reading, and it turns out that it wasn't so simple in one way. Yeah. It just took so much. I kept on reading more, and it, and, um, it kept on not being completely clear. Uh, and actually, I, I ended up taking some advice, which now I, well, I can't say I regret, because it was part of my journey, but in a sense, you know, I disagree with some positions I had you know, four or five years ago which I took from initial advice, which I got from reading. So, um, so it all ended up being very convoluted. But in terms of what I know of teacher training, my understanding of teacher training is that, um, again, from what I know, there seems to be a, um, a relatively low amount of information provided about cognitive science. I think cognitive science is probably the most important, most obviously important thing to know as a teacher in terms of theory. And a lot of emphasis on um, uh, as far as I know, a lot of emphasis on child development, which I think, I'm not saying you shouldn't learn any child development. I'm just, I, just, just, I kind of feel like it's probably more important for primary teachers, at least. Um, I kind of feel like uh, there are some very simple, very powerful ideas in cognitive science which basically relate to, um, to learning in terms of like how people change how people learn new things, whereas development is more or less talking about what happens even if you don't do anything. Um, it just seems like a different, uh, like a different yeah. perspective. But again, I mean, my, my, my level of knowledge of, of the syllabus of the curriculum in these courses is, is pretty small. It seems to me like also from what I hear from teachers that they often go into school and they feel like they haven't been taught a lot of practical things. Like, for example, they haven't been taught how to uh, manage a class or how to or a bunch of other things that they basically have to do in their day-to-day -day. and as a result they wonder how much relevance there is and what they were taught when it comes to actually carrying out in the classroom or in a school uh, so yeah that that I can see where they're coming from yeah it's kind of interesting that's I would say that's my personally my experience was the other way around I felt that my teacher training was lots of classroom management um, this is how you might need to mark books this is how you might need to interact with a hierarchy of school this is how to get a job but uh, I would say they mentioned Vygotsky for you know a couple of weeks um, but there was no more interest in kind of getting into the the depths of learning and what is what is going on and how can you I wonder if it was more that I felt that the the training was more to do with um my university producing a teacher at the end who could they could go this teacher looks like they came out of the University of Winchester rather than having this and the same is probably true in, in a classroom isn't it in that they wanted this homogeny to come out of all these students know the same thing they didn't want um so my cohort at uni, there was a hundred of us and they didn't want a hundred different practitioners with a hundred different educational views and some are really into development and some are really into cognitive science. They wanted this kind of, you know, okay, you all know this and you all know how to, yeah, mark a book, talk about seating plans, all that stuff. Um, have you ever come across someone that you think uh, that you've kind of found it surprising that they are in education but have uh, like a very low interest in like academic research or in um, 
better understanding education? Um, so just first to respond to the thing you were saying about your own experience. So mostly my understanding comes from talking to other people and what their experience is. Quite possible that there's a variation in this across universities in the UK. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so it might be the University of Winchester case and wherever else case is different. So that's quite possible. Um, but uh, I, and, and also occasionally I've seen you know, posted online people saying things like, well, it wasn't practical enough, but then you know, that, could, that, could be, that could be anyone. So perhaps the, these things vary. Um, in terms of, so you're asking, have I met anyone who doesn't seem to be very interested in the academic side of um, what learning is and how it works, etc. In fact, I feel like the majority of people who I met when I was an actual teacher in school didn't really have a very strong interest in that. It felt like um, it felt like that wasn't a very big concern. It felt like uh, that might be too far away from the day to day, and you have to just deal with what you have right now. That. Mm -hmm felt like it was more of the emphasis. And I felt, as a person who's naturally drawn more into that kind of direction, of being a little bit more academic or intellectual about these things, asking a lot of questions to the point that maybe it would annoy other people at some stage. Um, but <laughs> honestly, uh, but just, just wanting to know and just wanting to keep asking and seeing what I can find out. Um, I didn't feel that that kind of perspective was that much welcome in a sense. It's not so much that I had a lot of friction with people, but it was more that just, it was always, okay, how are we gonna get through the day today? And there's just not really, really very much room for philosophizing, yeah. that's your sort of mindset. Yeah, I would, I would uh, say I've had a similar experience and um, I, I'm really interested in what could be done to change that situation because I think you're absolutely right that there might be some people who if the conditions were right, um, their interest might be piqued in things like that. And it ought to be, you know, and it would make them a better teacher and it would make them probably more fulfilled. Um, so in terms of, you know, workload and the type of work that people are being asked to do, um, if there were, in my opinion, there should be space in any kind of educator's life for that kind of learning, for that kind of reflection, to keep up to date with current um, research, all that kind of stuff. Because even if you have had, a, you know, an amazing experience in your teacher training, um, as you say in your podcast, you know, stuff that you read a while ago, you're like, okay, yeah, great, this. And then you read something else and you go, oh, no, actually that's challenged what I thought before and I'm going to try it this way now. Um, your average teacher doesn't get the space to do that. The opportunity to do it, um, you have to be like super motivated if you're going to put the time in to do that. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons that we do our podcast as well, like yourself, you know, we kind of read stuff knowing that we've got this dedicated time to discuss it. And if someone else is interested in it, then brilliant. That's an extra added bonus. Um, but your average person who's involved in education um, may not have that, that time, that space, that motivation. Um, and that, for me, that should be part of the job that you've got that time or whether it's a kind of incentive to do that, a bit like Lewis, you were saying at one point, weren't you, um, before this conversation about uh, nurses, for example, or you know, people in the med medical profession have to keep their training up to date. They have to re-register. They have to show that they're uh, sort of on the board, these kind of things. And in uh, the education system in the UK, we, we don't have that. And um, I, I don't really know what the answer is. I don't know how people could be given the space and the motivation to, to keep learning in that way.
Support the podcast today by becoming a Patreon member at childrenoftheforest.com. Check out the podcast links for more details. Well, I think one of the things that we, both both your podcast and our podcast do, which is that we review and kind of summarise books and texts in ways that... Um, I, I like to think that we're more approachable than spark notes. That's the level I'm going for. Um, but we're, it's sometimes difficult with texts that are quite academic or I find some books are very long and very slow paced, but they need that pace in order to take the reader on a journey from, okay, this is what you think you might understand about um, Skinnerism or behavior management or something. And like, let me very slowly take you there um and then when we try to talk talk about that book and you realize you're condensing it down into such a short space do you ever feel like sometimes you're you're sort of like i don't want to say taking away some of the magic because your podcast is very good and very informative but do you know what i mean with that kind of doing books justice when they're very long um if i could first respond to what jenna was saying uh, because i also wanted to add something to that so um it, relating to the, the motivations behind my podcast, you, what you were saying very strongly relates to the motivation behind me doing my podcast as well. Because firstly, there's this thing about when I was a teacher, there were times when essentially I wasn't very good at answering questions like, why are we doing this? Like, for example, why am I teaching kids maths? Why should kids learn mathematics? What, what's the purpose of this? These kinds of basic questions which uh, you know, many kids come up with um, which we usually, essentially, if you're a math teacher, you usually just find a way to tell them to shut up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many people have like a really, really because full answer. Are. You know, you just go because like, yeah, well, just yeah, exactly, yeah, just because that's the way it is, right? And that, that I don't find that very satisfying. So I, I wanted to have, and I still want to have. I think I'm, you know, I'm better than when I started, but I still have a way to go. I, I, I still want to have answers to those questions which I can believe strongly enough that if someone asks me I can be like well this absolutely here's the reason or I mean it doesn't matter if I believe them or not it matters the fact that I'm convinced because I've got good evidence so it could be no actually this is rubbish you should go outside and play why are you learning maths this whole system should be dismantled you know that if, if I had that perspective or if I had you should absolutely do all your homework and stay in here and study as much as you can because of reasons a b and c you know as long as I was strong as long as I'm strong in my uh, understanding and I can give good reasons then I'd be happy but it's just at the beginning of it I was like I really I really don't know why we're doing this honestly I don't know um, you know I've studied a, a lot of I, I've got a good level of maths because of engineering degree and stuff and is it important I don't even know if it's important it's not clear to me and that, that was part of what I wanted to clarify and it was also the understanding that at the time you know I was I was deriving my income from private tuition which was you know Nothing in intensity compared to a teaching job in a school at the time when I started the podcast. Well, actually, before I started the podcast, that's when I started getting all the research. And it just occurred to me, firstly, that I couldn't get enough information in my head fast enough. Like, reading books wasn't fast enough. Podcasts that were available weren't doing enough for me at the time that I'd found. And so it occurred to me that I wanted the resource like the one basically that I'm making now, and I've been making the past few years. And it occurred to me that I'm the person to do it because I have the questions, I'm, I have the motivation, and I, very importantly, I have the time because normal teachers, of course, don't have the time because they've got to actually be teaching and 
doing other teacher things like marketing, etc., for you know 50 plus hours a week or something, you know, very difficult to, to handle. So um, that's that's these are the big reasons for my motivation going into it. That's something I wanted to comment on top of what you were saying about not having enough time. Now, sorry, um, this means that I've actually forgot the question that was posed a second ago <laughs> that you wanted me to answer. Could you repeat it, please? I was just kind of musing on the I idea was... that uh, sometimes, so we both review books and try and condense them down, but sometimes books need to be longer in order to take you on a journey slowly. Yeah, so I get the feeling with my podcast that um, essentially I do it whatever way I want to do it. Because in the end, I think there must be people who are kind of like me and who kind of want what I'm producing. But at some level, I do know there are plenty of people who will see the length of these things. And it's just me essentially lecturing for like an hour. And think, God, that I can't, I can't listen to this. It's just too much. And it doesn't worry me. You know, I'm not trying to become a superstar and, you know, have 10 or like 100 million followers. It's just, if it's going to be helpful to people who are interested enough and sort of thoughtful and patient enough for this, then, then great. Uh, so I do feel actually that I spend a lot of time going into a lot of detail. And as time goes on, what happens is that in the earlier episodes, I think, for one thing, I probably had slightly less of a feeling for how much I should go into things. I probably went into things a little bit more in depth than I needed to at, at times. But also now, because of having more knowledge and more perspective from all the stuff I've read before, a lot of the time I'll read a book and it really won't take very long for me to realize, oh, this is a book which is doing this, you know, and it just sort of almost categorize itself in my head or I'll have an idea of, oh, the whole book is just a, a, a one of these things and i'll just be yeah. able to explain what that is and that, now the episode is 10 minutes long so for example um recently um like what's becoming slightly more more common on my podcast as the episodes go on is it's slightly more common for me to take books which i uh, picked up in an honest desire to learn something and i discovered that the book was absolutely terrible but it's very difficult to, <laughs> to realize that until you have enough knowledge that you'll go what is this person doing this is such a bad book so then I go on the episode and I go, well, here's a book and here's some of the stuff it says and here's why it doesn't make any sense and it's just useless. Um, I'm not mm. trying to do that to be mean. I'm trying to do that to point out what the problem is so that people don't waste their time on it, basically. But partly, basically, what's happened is that because I have more knowledge now, because I've done with reading, it means that I can summarize things a bit better than I used to be able to. Um, but I was always leaning in the direction of just cover as much as you can. Hand, or like make sure you you do the justice by taking ages if you have to and there, there have been episodes on my podcast which split into several recordings because they're so long you know like in total three hours long or something split into two or three recordings um because i always wanted to not skip anything so if anything i feel like i've, I've kind of gone on the other side of this um trade-off where i've created a barrier to entry in a sense because people have to be willing to listen to me drone on for an hour uh so there's <laughs> that that barrier, which I'm more happy to have that barrier there in a sense than I am to sloppily miss things, if you like. Um, or I'm not sure if you can say sloppily, just like, you know, selectively, let's say, miss things. Um, and with time, perhaps I, I, I start moving slightly more in the other direction, where I do a bit more of selectively missing things uh, so that episodes don't happen quite a lot. I think that's one of my, if I can just fanboy for a minute, one of my favourite episodes. I can't remember where I was walking, but it was... Um... Oh, I can't remember the book now, but it's, 
but it was all about this book that you were reviewing and they had said, oh, there are six variables that can influence a classroom. And they didn't mention what the variables were. And then they went, oh, and also could be other variables as well. And it was just pure joy to be walking along listening to you. You're not as rude as us in the podcast, but essentially going, this is fucking bullshit. They've just written their <laughs> crap. Like, they, they have written absolutely nothing. And just to hear that kind of honest, like, no, nah, I've read the book. Don't worry about it. You don't need to. Was really refreshing and kind of is honest, isn't it? That is sometimes how we feel about texts. Yeah, I'll try and keep it family friendly, but it is fucking bullshit. I'm going to out there right now. That, that, that book is fucking bullshit. Uh, yeah, the book in question is called Experiential Learning. Um, uh, third edition. I was surprised it was third edition. I was like, it's third edition? Like, who read the first two editions? But anyway, um, but yeah, apparently people do read it. So some people, I mean, I'm not going to blame the people for reading it for being stupid either. I'm not going to say, like, who are these stupid readers? I'm going to be like, who are these readers who obviously don't know any better? You know, I'm not, it's not because they're stupid, it's because they don't know enough about what's going on. They need to be informed that this is bad, right? So that's partly what I'm doing on, on podcasts. It's like, look, this is bad. Here are the reasons why it's bad. Uh, yeah, so that's that's very much what was going on in that case. I think that's one. Of Actually, the this brings me. Um, Go on. Sorry, sorry I was interrupting you. I was... Sorry, I think I think because we've, we've got like three seconds of lag or something. Yeah. To it over mm. a but uh, no, I, I was just going to say that it feels to me like this brings us closely to what you initially uh, were interested in talking about, which is uh, uh, professional development in particular in terms of reading, because the thing that immediately comes to mind or came to mind me was the fact that um, what if you actually try to do professional development in reading and you ended up reading some terrible books? Uh, it's there is actually a problem with selection here. Yeah, I, I was thinking. Well, I was having a very similar thought, but I was wondering that if uh, is reading a terrible book, although that might have a an impact on then you know if you read it and maybe you don't at the time that you read it you don't have the. Um, Critical experience. faculties. Yeah, to, to know that the book is fucking bullshit. But um, <clears throat> if you if you invest in the two, three hours to read a book, that's a very different time investment to driving for two hours, sitting in a conference room, listening to someone prattle on about something, having some cold, stale sandwiches for lunch, not really enjoying the afternoon, and then coming home and paying a lot of money for it and paying a lot of money for it and i'm wondering whether there's something there about you know it's undervalued but personal development through articles and books and podcasts and things is kind of low cost high reward in terms of how it can impact your teaching yeah i get where you're coming from um what i would say to this actually is um, I, I think a lot of people would say a lot of different things about, for example, what their own opinion is about going to conferences. Maybe some, maybe some people, I know there's actually research out there that shows that a lot of the time when people go on training, nothing changes because some research is actually, this could be in various contexts, doesn't just have to be education, it could be in some business context, similar situations. Researchers measure changes in behavior like what do people actually do differently after they go on whatever this conference is about management or something and it turns out they manage exactly the same as they did before but it was very expensive to go and i, I think there's quite a lot of research that demonstrates that that does actually happen quite a lot I'm, i wouldn't be surprised at all if that's also true 
uh, in education. I would imagine that would happen. So there is that. But what, what I would add as something which um, I think is more particular of my own perspective or expertise, I suppose, is around literacy itself. So there's a fair amount of evidence, quite a lot of evidence, that reading is good for you. <laughs> That's the short way of putting it. Uh, which is based on the fact that, for example, the vocabulary of spoken language and the vocabulary of written language differs greatly in its richness, which basically means how frequently people use rare or technical vocabulary uh, to be very precise, or, or just or just very literary vocabulary, or anything like that. It's more common in in written text. What I, and what this does basically is means that if you if you read more, your vocabulary gets better. Um, there, there, there are a lot of things associated with this, but basically, and, and actually this happens, I should say, um, uh, all the way up to even very, very educated people speaking to each other, it's not as rich in vocabulary as a children's book. Uh, so, you know, even for, for children just learning to read sometimes, like this, this level, of, the level of quality of language on, on some measures of quality of language is higher in books for small children than it is among PhD graduates. It's, it's just the nature of spoken versus written language. And that's just the language side, but I think this is really something that goes to show uh, what the difference is when you're looking at something that's written down, is that it is thoughtful by nature. You know, this is, uh, there's also research that demonstrates that people's general knowledge is very highly correlated with the amount they've read. Um, measure that there are ways which I won't get into now, like measuring how much people have read in the past, and then you measure their general knowledge, and it turns out you know, those things are very strongly related. It seems like people get a lot of their knowledge from reading rather than from other sources. Uh, so this basically points me to the idea that whenever anyone is writing something down, they have to, or perhaps they just get to think about it. You know, you get to edit it. You write it down once and you think about what you've written. We, firstly, when you write it down, you're doing it slower than if you would speak. And then you get back, get to go back and look at it and think, is this really what I want to say? How can I make this more concise? How can I make, how can I make this more precise as well? And how can I make my argument stronger if there's an argument involved? How can I make the story more engaging, etc., etc.? All this stuff can happen because it's a gradually sculpted thing rather than an immediately performed thing. You have to perform then the words, for example, that come to mind are the words that are immediately available. That's why you end up using common words rather than rare words when you speak. But when you write, you end up using rare words, not just to sound clever, but because they better represent the meaning that you're trying to get across. So there's something fundamental in the nature of the medium of writing above the meaning of speaking, basically, in terms of quality of content. That's almost the philosophical position I hold, but it's based on all this different stuff around uh, around what we know about, for example, um, vocabulary and, and uh, reading volume and also knowledge and reading volume. It just seems to me like it's a high quality medium. And I, I would actually go one step further and say, books that are in print are likely to be a higher quality medium than reading, for example, Twitter or someone's blog or something. Because again, there's this level of effort that's gone into it, it's like extra high. There's this extra high level of kind of filtration where a person really has to think about how am I going to phrase this? And of course, you're, you're still going to get the occasional useless book, but it, it's just like you've auto-filtered it for yourself through so many layers. It goes even further. In, in, in education, perhaps it's not the best field to talk about 
about um, age of books because stuff changes quickly. But in a lot of other fields, when you read old books, then there's an extra layer of filtration, like evolutionary filtration. Of somebody wrote a book 200 years ago and we're still reading it now, probably means that book's good. Otherwise, nobody would know that that book exists. Like, why would anyone read it? You know, if, if someone wrote a book 2,000 years ago and we're still reading it, it's probably a really good book, right? So, so that's like another level, which also makes me tend to want the bias to old stuff as well. <laughs> Basically, I'm an old fogey and I'm trying to convince everyone else why that's a good idea. Um, but this, this is, uh, you know, my perspective on your, on your question of, you know, how much can we see that there might be a value or even a greater value in looking at this kind of material versus attending a conference? My perspective is it's got to do with the medium of writing itself. Do you think there's also um, that process at the other end in terms of how you receive it as well? Because if you are at a conference, you're just there at that time, you booked it however long ago, no matter what's going on in your life right now, you have to go to that conference unless something terrible happens. Um, and whether or not you were in the right frame of mind to receive that information is almost, is, you know, it's kind of luck of the draw on that day. You may be hungry, you may be thinking about that, you may be, have, you know, had the crazy morning or whatever, or something's happening outside, but you've got to sit there in your seat. Whereas when you're reading, you choose when you do that. You choose when you're in the right state of mind to do that. And if you write, uh, as you described, kind of very um, finely crafted sentence that's been filtered through many layers of thought by the, by the author, and it really hits home and it really challenges your worldview, and you think, whoa, I just need a moment to digest that for a minute. I need to just close the book and spend a couple of days just ruminating on that before I carry on, because that's massive. Um, is that a, a more uh, effective way of learning than sitting there listening to somebody, um, you know, from nine till three on a Wednesday, um, well, whether brain, or not you're in the right mood Your brain is thinking about the fact that the washing machine broke this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's something... Uh, but I hadn't thought of, but that's definitely true, that the permanence of the medium, that you can put it away and come back to it, is also uh, a kind of benefit. I mean, I suppose there's, there's an in, in, in that particular dimension, there's an intermediate kind of stage of things like podcasts and videos where they are permanent and you come back to them. It's a little bit more awkward with the content and stuff, but you can do that. Um, but yeah, that isn't, that is definitely another strength compared to things that are live. You know, I think, Let's try and balance this out in the direction of live things. In live things, you can ask questions. Probably the biggest, most obvious thing. Um, the ability to ask questions and interact. Uh, but, the, but exactly, the, the, the permanence of the medium in terms of writing, yeah, that's definitely a, a major factor. Look at it whenever you need to. I wonder Come. if there's something that's kind of, something that, uh, like it or not, that uh, conferences and, and that kind of, training also carry with it um normally some sort of accreditation that you can put that on a list somewhere and say the person x has done y or you know you've got badges in green school and autism awareness plus level four and like you say you might have just sat through and kind of dozed off during some of that lecture but you get an accreditation out of it compared to you know, you could be doing the most in-depth research at home privately, reading some really interesting texts, but it's harder to show the world that that you have achieved this or that you are considerate in this way. That's a really important question. This um, in the, uh, the, the this concept has a name. 
in the literature on the economics of education, it's called signaling versus human capital. So human capital is the idea that when you go to a conference, for example, then it changes who you are as a person, like you become better at something. And then, um, and, and that's why it's, that's why people go, that's why people pay. You know, this is the explanatory reason behind it. And signaling theory, the signaling factor, says that the real reason you go is to put on a badge that says, I now have Shopee badge number seven, so can I get a raise, please? You know, and that's the reason you go. Now, probably if both of those things are at work, it's unlikely that one of them completely dominates. And economists of education actually argue about how much each one, um, it's how big each one is. So there's, there's a guy recently uh, who put out a book called The Case Against Education, where the core of this, or one of the main tenets of his argument is that basically signaling is really big. But mostly the reason why people go to school and university and everything is so that they get grades. And then the grades give you, uh, you know, put you ahead of people in terms of getting a job. And then you never use your skills. That's his argument. Um, he backs it up with some data. Um, there are other people who argue the other way that say, you know, actually what you learn in school is really important. And they use other data. So it's not like this whole thing is completely um, cleared up. And it's something I'm looking into and being a bit frustrated because everyone's got a different opinion. And it's unlike some things, most things are contentious, but occasional things are not contentious. This is one of many contentious things, like how much does it actually, uh, now my words for it is how much is it real or authentic versus bullshit. Um, that, that's, bullshit is a word I'd like to use, even though I try to be family friendly, because I feel like it has a more definite meaning other than just being a swear word. What I mean is that if you're going to go to a conference or something, sit through it and not pay any attention and then only do it because you get some sort of you know badge at the end and then show off your badge to people for whatever reason be it status be it getting you know promotion or raise or something or just be it because your boss said you had to and you're just fulfilling this requirement of having to do it any of those reasons and this behavior i would consider to be my word for it would be bullshit now, what I consider to be authentic is if you go and learn something because you want to know that thing. And I'm, I'm, you know, I have a very strong personal value here that I, I am like bullshit is my nemesis, and I really like doing authentic learning. Um, and I'm talking a lot personally here as well. This is part of why you know I don't even have any accreditations of any kind in teaching or psychology or any related field, but I'm in this field anyway. <laughs> Because I'm really trying to figure out, because I really want to know myself. Um, and I don't care about badges, I just care about knowing. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's, uh, that's what I'm doing with this. But it's, it's certainly um, a force within the kind of economics of how education and training of any kind work, that as soon as it's possible to do signaling, then it's going to impact, for example, popularity of a course or a kind of resource and uh, the price that you can set etc etc it's so interesting isn't it it's um and i don't know how much you know about forest school as an ethos the world that we kind of work in do you know much about it i think you read you mentioned in the last podcast you're reading some um peter gray's work so imagine peter gray but in the woods that's us okay. so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's holistic learning outside in nature and um there are there's continual conversation amongst um reflective practitioners which we're all supposed to be and that's what i really value at forest school that the reflective uh, element of your practice is um really is really valued you know that is a thing that we are meant to be doing the whole time and loads of people do um and in discussions amongst the community there are so many there's just a lot of, of, of chat around you know what does it actually mean to be child-led how much you know what is our role and also about what you're saying about kind of signaling really so some people going well yeah i do have this forest group but they really want something extra you know they re i really heard about the john muir award which is where you do i actually don't know very much about the john muir award but it's um it's like a badge you know you do the thing and you get the award or um oh i've really heard about this uh, other scheme where you've got something to show for it at the end of the day and that is um a it's just it's an issue isn't it it's an interesting issue within forest school and that kind of the pull in in both directions and whether it's best for learners whether it's it helps the educator um i, I find it really fascinating it's a bit of intrinsic and extrinsic external motivation isn't it but applied to the teachers rather than just applying it to the children it's applying it upwards and going okay how are we motivating teachers to learn is it intrinsic motivation or are they being motivated by badges i think there's another bit though that's like um as we were talking about the courses i was thinking you know what what's the course's motivation for existing um versus something like a podcast or a book and um as we mentioned peter gray's it's a kind of like you can read peter gray's book um and his book in some ways says you are not particularly needed you know children will self-learn children will self-motivate all this kind of stuff if i was running a course i don't think i would get many takers to pay to come on a course for me to tell them that they they didn't need to do anything do you know what I mean the courses kind of have that need to perpetuate more training to perpetuate more training whereas a book goes fuck it you've bought the book now I've got your money I'm going to tell you actually how the world is um you know kids are going to learn on their own just leave them alone that um I was just listening to your latest podcast I was yesterday um on discovery learning which um, really, that I found it very interesting for two reasons. I found the paper that you were talking about interesting. And also I found it interesting that you uh, were very honest and said that you'd, you know, kind of accepted a, a theory of learning and been really keen and been a real fan of it. And then you read evidence that suggested that actually it wasn't effective and that was hard for you to hear. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit about that? So, yeah. Um that's definitely something that um, uh, that I've struggled with, and I think it's just a broadly human thing. Something like confirmation bias. It's very difficult to um, to change your beliefs. Basically, is difficult. Um, and yeah, so in, in particular, I was um, I got interested in. I got interested in. I suppose broadly you could call it progressive education. The trouble with progressive education as a label is that it has many meanings. So it's not exactly very clear what I mean by that. But I particularly got into uh, something called um, math circles. And math circles are a kind of um, a way of teaching maths or learning maths where uh, you set a problem, uh, the sort of facilitator sets a problem 
And then uh, the kids kind of just work it out on, uh, by themselves with the facilitator kind of helping it along from time to time. And um, there's no specific evidence or study around that. But I, I was inspired by the stuff that people were writing about this. I was inspired by the idea that this might be possible. It made sense um, because of my own feelings about it to some extent. Also, there was some other stuff that's written, like Lockhart's Lament, um, which is a controversial essay on math education, which also talks about how math is misunderstood and stuff. And uh, so I ended up trying out this stuff. I ended up actually going on a course in America written by the authors to try and do this better. And then it didn't work out so well. I tried it in a few different contexts in the UK. It didn't work out so well. Uh, I wasn't really sure what to make of it. I thought maybe I wasn't doing it very well. But then when I got onto looking at the research which was related to this, which at first I didn't know how to find, but eventually I kind of stumbled into it, essentially, then it became clear that uh, there's a very good reason why this kind of teaching is not very effective. Uh, and there's a lot of research that shows that it shouldn't really be very effective. And so eventually I managed to change my mind. But at first it was very difficult to because I was, um, in a way I was quite polit politicized actually by some of these authors. They, uh, I, I was quite bought into their way of thinking and their way of thinking was quite adversarial about anyone who doesn't have this opinion is, um, you know, is on, on one hand foolish and on the other hand um, destructive to children or something similar to, to that idea. So I was quite brought into that emotional side of the, of the idea and the theory as well. So it was quite difficult to extricate myself from that, but eventually I did. Now I realized what was wrong with it. Yeah, it's um. It was it definitely listening to your podcast last night then sparked a discussion with my other half because, um, you know, like many, like all families, <laughs> we're you know, homeschooling at the moment. And um, it was a real kind of eye opening moment about, oh, well, you know, how how do people learn? And, and maybe this is something we need to think about. And it was um, very interesting when you're in the position where um, which I guess you are if you're doing private tuition as well. You are kind of in that that position of power, which we also are as forest school leaders, where you are kind of deciding what the curriculum is, you know, and you're deciding it's, if you go to school, you just go, off you go, off you go to school, you're somebody else's problem. And, you know, it's either the teacher's decision or the government's decision, head of department's decision, the head teacher's decision as to what we're going to learn and how. And then when actually you are um, in control of that through either being a, a a personal tutor, being a parent who's home educating, running a forest school session. Um, I suddenly felt the kind of weight of responsibility last night after listening to your podcast and thinking, well, if you do just accept the things that you believe because it's just best and good and nice and this is the way we do things, um, that you do need to be interrogating what you believe, really, because if it isn't actually the best for the child, um, that's kind of your fault. <laughs> you're using a strategy or going down a, a line of educating that hasn't got the research to back it up one thing i would like to add is uh, an idea i've had since quite a while ago can you still hear me yeah yeah 
Uh, one thing I'd like to add is an idea I've had since quite a while ago, which is that you might consider um, three types of education to fall on a line. Now, you should always be wary of people talking about things living on one dimension, but for the sake of argument, uh, it seems like you could put traditional education on one end of a line, um, unschooling on the other end of the line, so a bit like what uh, Peter Gray does, and progressive education in the middle. Um, now again, uh, you have to be wary of thinking of one dimension, but broadly speaking, my idea of this is that you could think of traditional schooling as being something where you remove autonomy and you add high amounts of direction. Um, and then um, and then in unschooling situations, then you remove direction and you add full autonomy. And then progressive school is kind of like, you don't have that much autonomy because you're in school, which is a kind of place where you're forced to be, you don't have freedom to move outside of a room that you're in, etc. Um, you know, you have to be within your class, you have to be with this teacher, etc, etc. So there are many limits placed there. Um, so it's not fully free like it would be in unschooling, but also it's uh, not directed because the idea of progressive education is to reduce the direction as opposed to traditional education, which is to have high levels of direction, um, high levels of, you know, do this, now do this, you know, this is how this works. You know, I'm going to tell you the answers. This is how it works. Um, so since quite a long time ago, and I think this is, I, I, I still think this is basically true. Um, I feel like the ends of this are both sound and it's the middle that's bad, which, you know, a lot of the time people say, why don't we just take the middle option? You know, why don't we just take the average because the average is going to have the best of both worlds. My feeling is the average actually has the worst of both worlds. You know, the weakness of traditional education is that children are not free. Right, that's his weakness. People criticize it for that day and night. You, you can find plenty of people who, who are willing to say, oh, we're being terrible to children because we're locking them up, right? But if you do traditional education with high levels of direction, you're actually also exposing them to high quality information and, and structured knowledge in a way that they're actually going to be able to absorb it well and quickly and effectively. And, it's, and, and basically that's good, right? At the cost of reduction in freedom, right? And less autonomy, right? And on the other side, um, with unschooling, you don't, you know, direct children in a way. So you, you, well, you don't know what they're going to learn. Also, um, for some things, they're not going to be able to learn very quickly that way, right? But on the other hand, because they've got high amounts of autonomy, that's all got its own benefits, basically, right? Uh, which I'm sure you can talk about more than I can because you have so much experience of it, right? Where, when you're in the middle of this distribution with progressive schooling, I feel like you, you end up with locked up children who don't learn anything. It's like the worst possible case, right? Now, I mean, I say that I'm fairly, but not fully sure of this. I would say that on the tradition, like with the traditional schooling end of the spectrum, increasingly I'm convinced, as in I'm, I, I see more and more and more evidence in support of that basic idea that actually when you do school in a traditional way, kids learn a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of like, for example, cognitive science now that seems to indicate to me that that's the case. On the unschooling side, uh, the amount of evidence I have is much less, but my general impression is broadly positive. I've never found anything actually negative, basically. Um, possibly except some stuff about discovery learning, but it's not really the same as discovery learning, so it's not really that comparable. Um, 
Otherwise, I've generally got a good impression, but I just, I haven't, like, A, I haven't seen enough research, or B, not enough research has been done, I can't say for sure, but my impression is generally good from all the different stuff that I've seen. And the progressive stuff is all the stuff where, yeah, this just doesn't seem to be working. I guess that weird, the weird middle ground with um, progressive learning is that you are still measuring learning that is predetermined. You know, you are, you've decided yes. we're in school and we're trying to get children to a point and the point is here and it's how we get them there that is what we're going to experiment with. We're still getting them to here. So you can measure that um, outcome against more traditional teaching and go, well, obviously it's not as effective. Whereas with an unschooling approach um, or a more holistic approach, I, that's another fascinating question. How do you measure what has been learned? You know, because the breadth of learning is not, it's so much wider. You know, you've got all the kind of uh, social and emotional stuff going on. You've got, you know, like the learning that can happen in a forest school session. Again, we're, um, we're reflective in terms of both generally in our practice, but also session by session, we all reflect on the session and go, okay, so what actually happened there? And, and what was happening for that learner? And what development have they made there? And what um, steps might we take next time to encourage learning in uh, you know, a certain direction? Um, and it's because it's so broad, it's very, very hard to define what that learning has been, you know, and it may all be internal and you might not see the, which is something that really frustrated me with traditional teaching was that you might not see the sort of fruits of your labor or the child's labor as it were for quite some time. You might, you, you can't necessarily assess the effectiveness of one lesson because actually a penny might drop a few weeks or months in the future for that child depending on what else is going on in their life and all the rest of it um i, th I think if we can link that to to something you were saying earlier it's almost like are you testing authentically or testing for bullshit and it's it's that same thing of like are you testing for a badge to say they have achieved x or there's that authentic learning and authentic learning learning does go off in a million different tangents and it's not as easy to kind of accredit. Find out about CPD courses at childrenoftheforest.com. Check out the podcast links for more details. We've been talking for far longer than we said we were going to keep you for. So, <laughs> and I feel like slightly Gemma and I are big fans of your podcast and we could probably just sit here like until it's like midnight for you and geek out about education. Yeah. And, and another that's... thing, what do you think about this? <laughs> What do you think about play? What do you think about it? Yeah. Um. And I'm happy to keep talking if you want, but it might be a question that is too long for your audience. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they'll put up with any old shit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, maybe maybe we can talk to you again at some point in the future about um, something uh, you know really specific, if you don't mind um, us reaching out to you again. And, oh, um, great. That, and when you do come really back, if you're ever near but near Devon in, in any way we'll show you some pretty good unschooling you know <laughs> come down to the woods oh, that's great. yeah yeah thank you I, I would take, I would take a, I would take that offer That'd be brilliant. well thank you so much for your time yeah thanks and I hope uh, the weather cools somewhat for you <laughs> well um, thank you for being in touch um, yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully we'll have another one at another time. Yeah, great. Okay, cheers, Dad. Cheers, Dad. Bye. 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 If you like this podcast and want to support more episodes, you can donate through Patreon. 
visit patreon.com forward slash children of the forest to show your support for the forest school podcast